Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Familiars. If you've encountered something strange or paranormal, Bigfoot, ghosts, UFOs, or anything similar, and you'd like to share your story, you can contact us by email, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. I have just returned from the X-Filers United convention with Joshua Cutchin. Met some great people there. I met Greg and Dana Newkirk and Mike Cleland. Everyone was really wonderful. I just had a really, really wonderful time there. I think maybe I'll have Josh on at some point and we can do a kind of debriefing and recap of the X-Files convention and the experiences we had when Josh was here. Josh and I, along with Soraya, went to Site 7 multiple times. Josh said driving around York County with me is uh, like getting a tour of Bigfoot sightings. You know, someone saw Bigfoot in that field and someone saw Bigfoot over there and so forth. So that was a great time, and I want to thank the X-Files United Convention for having us, and Josh for being my co-pilot in the long drive from Pennsylvania to Rhode Island and back. Thanks to the listeners who stopped by to the X-Files Convention to see Josh and I. That was an awesome surprise. Tonight's episode, we're going to be talking with Christian, who has a really, really neat story of something that may or may not have been a flannel man. Then we talk about a documentary movie he's working on about some sunken treasure in texas and finally he tells a very very old bigfoot story that was related to him 
from something that happened, I believe, in the 1930s in Texas. Before we get to Christian, I'd like to remind everyone that Strange Familiars is brought to you by our patrons. If you'd like to help us continue to make Strange Familiars and get more content besides, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. For $3 a month, you can get extra shows. We do at least one full extra episode of Strange Familiars for everybody on Patreon. Sometimes we do more. And if you'd like to go in at higher levels and give us more support, you can also get stuff like t-shirts, stickers, copies of my book, and more. Check it out at patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course, I want to thank all of our current patrons. You guys help make Strange Familiars happen. Thank you very much. If you don't like the idea of a recurring payment like Patreon, you can still help. We have a paypal.me link at strangefamiliars.com in the show notes. You can find it there and make a one-time donation. And of course, you can always help by giving us nice five-star reviews at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and by sharing the show on social media. Without further ado, let's get to our interview with Christian. talking with Christian Roper, who has a really neat flannel man, flannel entity, flannel person type story to tell us from his youth. And then we're going to talk about a documentary that he's working on and maybe a a couple other things. I guess starting out, we'll talk about this uh, flannel man guy. Yeah, this would have been around middle school or high school for me. It kind of carried over um, based on a few of my friends sightings but I didn't realize it at the time but this flannel man phenomena you talk about kind of had a huge impact on on my formative middle school and high school years and I grew up still live here now uh, in a small town in East Texas called Jacksonville and I'm sure people who listen to paranormal podcasts are very familiar with this, but East Texas is a very strange place. We've got all sorts of strange stories, everything from UFOs to, you know, Sasquatch. Uh, we've got it all. And I had a Sasquatch encounter when I was young and found your podcast through the Sasquatch Chronicles blog. I'm an avid listener of Sasquatch Chronicles, and I saw this thing about Flannel Man. And I said, that sounds extremely similar to, you know, what my friend called plaid growing up. And the story starts in the winter of 2009. He lived in a house quite a ways outside of the city in in a semi-wooded area. Uh, But he had a, a long driveway surrounded by a white picket fence and about maybe 50 meters On the other side of this picket fence, uh, there were about 50 meters of grass field, and then there was a tree line. Well, he and his brother would often have friends over to play basketball, and it was winter break. I was not there at the time, but he would often have friends over to play basketball. And they were playing around 2 a.m. one night, and there were 
I believe five people there and I've contacted a few of these these eyewitnesses just to say hey I, I want to make sure I get all these facts right you know kind of tell me what you saw anyway they, they were playing basketball late one night over, over winter break and one of the guys all of a sudden yells look and then points over to the field and then not everyone saw it but two or three of the guys look over and they see a guy in a flannel shirt with they couldn't tell what type of pants it was but it was definite pants and they said he was definitely uh, a white male with brown hair shaggy hair and they always described him as a lumberjack well he had a plaid shirt and they always referred to him as plaid and you know we, we were all 12 13 14 years old at this time so it's it's not the scariest thing to see it's it's strange but when you're in middle school you know you tend to not be scared by by things that other people might find find scary so they kind of laughed it off they're like why is it why is that man in the field well as they all turn to look he ends up it was kind of like he was shocked that he had been spotted and he ends up running toward a, a kind of a covered carport that they had on the other side of this field. It was dark. He, he was kind of on the outer edge of, of where their light outside could reach. And so as soon as he was spotted, he's running off into the darkness. But they said it, it wasn't necessarily a sprint. It was not like he was trying to you know, get out of there as quickly as it could, as quickly as he could. It was more along the lines of kind of this is really awkward. I've been seen and let me jog out of here. Uh, they, they didn't know what he was holding. You couldn't see anything like that. Just flannel shirt, white male, shaggy hair. And they started referring to him as plaid. Well, they were playing basketball again a few months later. And another one of the boys claimed that he saw him walking in the tree line. Every time they saw him, they saw him near this tree line. And it, it got to the point to where they said, okay, we're no longer seeing things. There's, there's something out there. And, and this is kind of where the legend of Plaid uh, started. I remember in, in middle school and high school, I started to you know go over most weekends to spend the night. We loved playing music together. Uh, we were in a band together at the time, and you know I loved spending weekends at his house. But he'd always say things like, "Don't go too far away from the house at night," or "Don't go in this section of the woods because Plaid is out there." And me, being so young, I was like, "You know, what what are you talking about?" You know, I had you know paranormal and Sasquatch encounters growing up, and you know I thought he was crazy. <laughs> Talking about this guy in a, in a flannel shirt living out in the woods. That was so insane to me. I was, it's a strange thing. I, I, I don't think anyone can deny that. You know, whether it's something that is conjured up in the mind, you look at dreams, so many people experience the same dreams. Could it be the same thing? You know, I don't know. He described something that was very physical. His family, you know, they're very spiritual uh, and religious, and, and they aren't necessarily the ones to entertain these ghost stories and so it, it was the weirdest family to have this come from but every time he, we would go over he would he would say he would give us these warnings and say don't go in the woods that where that's where plaid lives 
one time he swore that he saw plaid carrying a hatchet but you know he could easily have been you know attributing lumberjack or lumberjack type things to plaid right uh just kind of a carryover from the legends but it was to the point to where you know one time we went out to a creek on the back part of that property and you know he took a hatchet with him he said i'm not <laughs> he said if plaid's out here i would i want to have some sort of weapon he they were so scared that they would not go on a part of their own property because you know two or three times they had seen this man that looked like a lumberjack and it fit so many of these flannel man encounters they searched that property because they said well maybe it's a homeless man he was young they always described him as maybe late 20s no older than that and it's not exactly a a livable area uh for someone who is homeless there's so many if you are homeless in in that specific town you know there's there's so many better options i don't know why anyone would be in this one area of this one property i mean it's it's pretty much wilderness i don't know what exactly they were seeing i never saw him myself but you know like i said he'd always come up with these warnings and say you know keep the curtains closed if we're sleeping at night yeah he was so worried about you know plaid watching in from the field or seeing plaid around the house it was kind of a mutual respect that they had. He said, Plaid's got his part of the property. Oh, wow. We stay over here. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it. whether that was paranormal in nature or not or completely explainable, I just thought it was extremely interesting. And I had that light bulb moment when I saw that on the cover of, of one of your episodes, uh, the flannel man. I was like, that. that's exactly what I grew up semi-fearing wow now did they i i didn't catch it if if you specified was it a, a red flannel shirt or or red plaid or i don't think it was ever seen during the day okay um but they said it was obviously plaid mm-hmm. and and red is such a default color for flannel or plaid shirts that a lot of times people don't even think to mention you know red they'll just say oh it was checked or it was plaid yeah yeah and I'm sure you can have some variance on on the color of the shirt with seeing it at night, but from what I heard, they said it was definitely plaid. I believe some said it looked like a dark yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have been red in you know the orange streetlight making it look yellow. Uh, but as from what I've listened to from the flannel man encounters on your show, this is one of the you know the first that's been multiple people seeing it. Yeah, uh, and in a way that's you know, reality and not waking up from a dream. It they're fully aware of what's going on. There have been a couple where people were already awake. They were driving or something. Yeah, um, yeah, I I remember that one. And, and the the girl on Halloween who was just walking, you know, with her brother through a mm-hmm. patch of woods. But yeah, by by far most are waking up. They'll wake up and either he'll be there or they'll they'll go do something, get a glass of water or something, and then they'll see him. Yeah, it's not always red. It's it, the shirt isn't always red. It's the the check or plaid pattern seems to be more important than the color. We've gotten now red, yellow, I think brown, and that might be it. But I know we've got more. You know, a, a few colors other than red. Let's say 
Did you get the impression that they thought it was something more than a homeless man? Uh, you know, this, this friend group that would have been playing basketball there, they all come from, you know, very religious backgrounds. It was essentially, you know, like a church youth group playing basketball at the time. So, you know, those wouldn't be the type of people to necessarily entertain a ghost legend or anything paranormal outside of, you know, what's biblically written. Right. Uh, but they all thought it was extremely weird. They were kind of leaning toward, you know, some killer out in the woods, not necessarily something that's mm-hmm. in your mind or something paranormal. It was kind of like a, you know, a movie villain in the woods. But so many of them claimed to see it, saw it multiple times. He was always dressed the same way. That's so interesting. I, I love the name Plaid. It's just fits it could have been some guy but uh, what a strange set of circumstances and 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 it checks a lot of boxes for the you know the these flannel entities yeah one of the brothers is back and then one is uh serving in the military at the moment and i as soon as i found out about these flannel man episodes and these flannel man encounters i immediately sent them links and i said hey is this anything like what you guys experienced and, and they were saying yeah well maybe other people are seeing the same thing we saw. Oh, wow. But, yeah, that's really interesting. Really cool story. Before we move into talking about the documentary, since you, you brought up your Sasquatch encounter a couple of times, and people are going to go, why didn't you ask him about the Sasquatch encounter? Let's just stop and say, you're going to be on Confessionals, uh, another yeah. podcast, and you'll I, I presume you're telling that story there, right? Yes, I, I can quickly say that growing up in East Texas, it was 2008, I had a huge interest in cryptozoology, but it was marine cryptozoology. Uh, and then a friend of my mother's basically said, hey, I've got some skunk capes on my property. We thought she was crazy. We ended up having some, I, I guess I'd classify it as class B encounters that night. And she basically showed me all these CDs uh, full of hundreds, if not thousands of photos of these things. And I couldn't make it past three or four before I got, you know, too scared to move on. And it, it in a way, it kind of scared me out of enjoying the woods for a while. Wow. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'm talking about that on in depth on the confessionals. Yeah, and, and I, uh, I, th- I think that's awesome. We had to talk. We just said, hey, since you're coming on the confessionals around the same time as Strange Familiars, let's talk about different stuff. And yeah. uh, I think that's great. I think, you know, that because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people listen to both. And that way we can share the love and... We don't have to step on Tony's toes. Yeah. Well, I commend you and and all other podcast hosts for this. But for a lot of people, talking about encounters like this is a form of therapy. Finally, you know, there's groups of people that that will believe them and, you know, might get some some knowledge out of it. And I, I consider you guys to be researchers in your own way, whether you go out and physically do stuff or whether you just compile encounters in your own way through podcasts but you know i started reaching out to as many people as i could saying hey this is what i've seen and luckily i had enough stories for for both shows yeah it's awesome that's awesome and and, you know a lot of people have this idea that podcasts are really competitive and stuff and that just hasn't been my experience they're very supportive of each other we tend to work together. It's not like terrestrial radio. You know, we're not competing for the same time slot 
you know, people can listen at any time they want to podcasts. So it's uh, my experience with, with all these guys, with Tony, with Wes, with Clint from OK Talk, with, uh, of course, the whole Where Did the Rogo family has been nothing but positive. It's been very supportive, and it's it's just a really cool thing to uh, to be involved in. I think that this kind of neat little network. But uh, people do, it, if I have somebody on, like after Tony's had them on or, or after uh, – They've been on another podcast, and they're, sometimes they're like, "Hey, I just heard that." So I think it's great that we have you know different stories to share around here, and then uh, we can promote your appearance on the Confessionals too. It, it may be before or after you know this episode comes out. So um, yeah, look to the Confessionals, and Christian will be telling some more stories there, some different stories. So let's talk about this documentary, which is pretty neat sounding. This is a something you're in the process of making currently, right? Yes, this is something I grew up around and you know I told you it's it's not necessarily paranormal uh, but it's a very cool story and the parallels that you find between paranormal folklore and treasure folklore are absolutely astounding oh yeah and well buried treasure is one of the things I now ask for so when I do Bigfoot investigations I have my your all your normal questions on my form you know what did you see when what were the weather conditions like what's the nearest creek etc 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 and then I have this whole section that I is just weird stuff uh, that I've started to ask. And one of those things is legends of buried treasure in the area. And you would be amazed how often that comes up. With you, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a legend of, uh, you know, somebody buried a box of old coins down the road. Or uh, there's a lost silver mine that's supposed to be here. Some, some form of something valuable being in the ground. Yeah. And it comes up so often. Absolutely. And I think through the process of, of this film, we've seen the importance of continuing those stories, whether there's any truth to it or not. It, it's generations of entertainment. And in a way, it, it's so important to these small towns, these small communities. You know, it's, it's a kind of a unifying thing. I, I just think they're really cool. Oh, they're absolutely cool. And yeah, they do. They become part of the, the character of the the geography in a sense it, it, you know becomes part of the the character of the town or the locality where they are absolutely that's what i always tell people who ask me like like oh i want to get into you know finding you know weird stuff where i am and i said i said learn the folklore you know learn the folklore learn learn the uh, get familiar with the landscape as yeah. well and those two things will, will lead you to a lot of really cool stuff i guess where does this uh, legend take place so this legend is based in a small town in northeast Texas uh, by the name of Tatum. Now, the legend states that in 1816, the infamous pirate Jean Lafitte stole approximately $2 million in Spanish silver ingots from a Spanish galleon named the Santa Rosa. Now, Lafitte got his start in slave smuggling and then into... He essentially, you know, raided these ships of spices and, and would take them uh, into the U.S., into Spanish Texas, and then basically resell them for, for cheaper. Uh, and, and he made quite a bit of money that way. But with these Spanish ships, of course, he accumulated quite a bit of wealth and treasure. So this legend states that the infamous pirate Lafitte, if you're familiar with pirates, you're going to know who Lafitte is, one of the most famous pirates to ever sail the Gulf, he had the silver, offloaded it 
in Texas in 1816, when it was still Spanish Texas in 1821, uh, Mexico uh, gained independence from Spain, but prior to then, it was still a Spanish colony. And he gives it to a smuggler by the name of Nicholas Trammell. Trammell assembles a smuggling party to take this silver north to St. Louis. Now, Trammell is very significant because he had a route going from Tennessee into Texas. It was one of the first Anglo roads into Texas. But along the way, Spanish, uh, the Spanish army caught word, tracked down the smuggling party around a lake called Hendricks Lake, just north of Tatum, Texas. This is where Trammell ordered the silver to be hidden in the lake. Uh, there was supposedly a small skirmish, and the silver goes missing to history. Now, there are a few interesting things to note. Now, about one-tenth of all of Spanish colonial wealth is unaccounted for. Most of that can be found in shipwrecks, at the bottom of the ocean, you know, you're familiar with the findings of Mel Fisher, and, you know, there's infinite amounts of wealth somewhere in our oceans, and I'm sure most of it will be found with the technology that, that we are, you know, attaining now. Uh, but pirates and thieves had a lot to do with this missing wealth. So it's a great story, but why would there be pirate treasure 200 miles from the coast? When I first heard this story... I was just so amused by this possibility because it's so, you know, almost random. You're 200 miles from the coast. Why would you be talking about pirate treasure? You know, why is it not, if it was a created legend, why is it not, you know, some outlaw that robbed the train, buried this treasure? You know, it, it's almost, it almost doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. So... You know, our kind of subtitle with this film, the name of the film is Sunken Silver. Uh, and, and our kind of subtitle for the film was All Legends Begin Somewhere. Because to have a 200-year uh, year old pirate treasure legend pop up 200 miles from the coast is extremely strange if there's nothing to it you know if if someone completely fabricated the story then they're the greatest storyteller ever told and i'm sure you're wondering has anyone ever looked for it yes <laughs> you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1884, the son of the man who founded the town, his name was Paul Tatum, he ends up searching for the treasure. And he was so convinced that he tried to drain this lake. He tried to drain Hendricks Lake. Now, 
what he found out was that Hendrix Lake is incredibly difficult to drain because it's an oxbow formation that was separated from the Sabine River. And every time the Sabine floods, which it is known to flood, the lake will fill back up and all the progress they had made will be lost. And so this has developed into, especially in the 50s, in the 1950s, this idea of the lake being cursed because every time a team would come in, attempt to drain the lake, it would fill right back up. And like I said, I told you, you know, the story is not necessarily paranormal, but I'd be like, wait a minute. There was a curse associated with it. Right. And I'd, you know, find these check marks um, and, and say, uh, yeah, this is, this story would really appeal to someone into the paranormal. So this man, Paul Tatum, also killed a man in a quarrel over draining the lake. Over all these searches, there were several men who said, you can't drain the lake. And the treasure hunters said, you know, I'm still going to drain the lake. Anyway, this fight between these two men had gotten to the point that Tatum ended up killing this other man. So that's where the legend got its start with people searching. Now, the next big uh, I guess plot point in the story is a 1935 news article that broke out adding all these details talking about Lafitte was attached to it. There were six wagon loads of silver being brought north. This is exactly what happened. And it was really cool in the, in the 30s. There are several nationwide instances of this legend being taken up and, and talked about in, in all these newspapers. And, you know, World War II happens not much interest in the lake. Well, in 1957, there was another article written about the lake talking about, it basically said, yeah, Jean Lafitte sent this silver north to St. Louis. It never made it. And basically the silver is in this lake asking to be found. Hmm. And of course, people will find that interesting, go to the lake. There was a local treasure hunter who was quoted as saying that after that 1957 article, all hell broke loose. There were two brothers who gained an interest in the lake in the late 50s with the last name of Sorel. Now, prior to this in the 50s, they had been involved with searches for oil in Israel based on Bible verses. There is a verse in the Bible, Deuteronomy uh, 33.24, English Standard Version says, And of Asher he said, Most blessed of sons be Asher, let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Well, in the 50s it was a very common school of thought that this was referencing oil. So there were all these men looking to strike it rich, going to oil, searching for the land that was given to Asher, in, in the stories in the Bible, looking for oil. Well, these brothers spent $13 million searching for oil only to give up. Well, they were at the lake chasing these legends. They did find something, and I'm sure you're wondering, has anything ever been found? Uh, yes. That, that question was coming, yeah. Uh, they were the first person to, to find something. They found a single tree, which is a piece that basically connects a freight wagon to the horses that would have pulled it. They found metal pieces of a single tree. After this, there's a man named Barney Waldrop, who was a local who got involved. He ends up finding a metal wagon rim. Uh, 
And there's a really cool photo of him holding this metal rim. And we've actually been able to, to track this down through one of our team members, which is a really cool piece of history. But his wife wrote across the photo, closest to success. Hmm. After this, there was one other major search by the Stotler family in Iowa. Now, the story surrounding the Stotler family was that a man and his son were going through the area, stopped in an antique store in East Texas, ended up buying an old powder horn and inside finding a map, which they believed was enough evidence to lead to a search in Hendricks Lake. So they had multi-million dollars in funding from Iowan engineering corporations to bring some equipment down to East Texas to drain a lake. So pretty much every summer throughout the mid-50s to late 60s, there was some activity going on in the lake. Now, the Stotlers didn't find anything, but Mr. Stotler is very important to the story because after this, after his searches, when he gave up, when his equipment failed him, he ended up contacting two people. He contacted Gene Dixon, who was the world's most famous psychic in the late 1960s to ask for her help. And he contacted the Royal Naval Archives in Spain. And he said, you know, this Santa Rosa ship has never existed. It, you know, I'm not finding anything. This all feels like a story. And I feel like I've done all this work for nothing. Well, they get back, you know, something like six to eight months later, they searched through all these archives and they said, well, we have one reference to a ship named the Santa Rosa. And it was leaving Havana, Cuba in late 1816. But in its ship record did not have any listing of any silver on board. Hmm. So all of a sudden when you've got this story about pirates, treasure, a lake that seems so fanciful, you've got wagon parts being found in the lake, you've got the ship existing, not only existing, but we were able to find out through um, a local university's uh, underwater archaeological society some information about these Spanish ship records. Well, if a ship would have left Havana up until 1821, that means that it most likely would have come from one of two places. That's Veracruz, Mexico, and Venezuela. In both of those places, it would have very likely taken on board freshly mined silver ingots, and that route would have taken it right in front of Galveston, Texas, which would eventually become the pirate colony Campeche, basically headed up by Jean Lafitte. And, you know, those no, there's no record of the silver being offloaded in Havana or the ship even getting there. There's record of it leaving, but, you know, in between, it's a big mystery. So, you know, last summer, myself and one of my high school friends, we, we met up, we recently finished college, we met up, and, you know, I said, have you ever heard of this legend? And he hadn't, and we slowly started picking away at old maps, these journals, these magazine articles, slowly seeing what we could figure out. And all of a sudden, there might be a map, the ship existed. Not only did the ship exist, it likely would have had the silver that's talked about in the story. So 
we said, hey, let's make an internet series about this because there are just so many twists in, in what we're finding out. You know, it, it deserves its own story. And we kind of came to the agreement that, you know, we're, we're thinking too small. Let's, let's do an entire documentary about this. You know, let's, let's see what people would be interested in this. You know, what could we include in this? Who all has connections to the story? We were finding connections in Iowa, in Virginia. Um, I believe we've tracked down connections to the story across six countries. Oh, wow. And it, it, we, we found this huge web of, of just people. And, you know, we were like, who cares about if, this, if the story is true? The, the cool part of this is all the people that get involved. You know, the, the people that were searching in Israel end up giving up on that because they believe there's pirate treasure in East Texas. And, you know, locals have always heard about people looking for treasure. They don't hear, you know, kind of the more mundane stories in between. We've, we've heard some great stories. We heard a story about a man who was diving the lake in the late 60s, ends up finding silver, digs it out of the water. He was in about nine feet of water, digs it up. And it's an old radiator with silver plating on it. And he says, what is this? Gets upset and says, someone else can find the silver. And he threw it back in the lake. Oh. You know, we, we started collecting all these cool stories about this. And, and you know, there's a big you know, supernatural draw to it. And uh, there's a murder attached to it, one of the world's most famous psychic was brought on at one point. There's been dowsing rods used and, and no one knows about this story. But what we were finding out is that this is the coolest treasure story in the United States with how many people have been involved. There've been other searchers with huge historical ties. There were associates of Mel Fisher that came to check out the lake. There was a man who was part of the team that discovered the USS Tecumseh, one of the biggest underwater discoveries in u.s history who two years later came and brought his own equipment to the lake and was completely confused on why he wasn't finding anything hmm. what year was that that would have been in 1969 okay there were a few other searches in the 70s and it's largely died out since then uh there's been a mining operation open up surrounding the lake and it's been largely cut off to public access but luckily we we have a way in we were able to see the lake just a few weeks ago and you know if, if there was a lake that would have the story attached to it it would be that lake when we saw that it was completely you know surreal and it there have been other stories attached to the lake as well in the 1890s there was a, a lake monster legend run in local newspapers, uh, oh, which yeah. was actually based on a very large alligator gar in the lake. Oh, okay. Wow. So it, it's been the story of, or it's been the, the setting for all these very cool stories, all this neat folklore. And, you know, we said, why don't, why don't we make a documentary with some young people getting some fresh minds on this and let's see what we can bring forward. Well, We've actually solved the mystery. Oh, really? After after eight months of, you know, I can't reveal everything. No, no, uh, save it. For we'll the reveal it in, the, in the film. That's fine. But after after eight months, 
we end up, you know, finding where a lot of the stuff comes from. And so this film will be a really cool way to see how folklore morphs over time to see how things are, are added and you get, you get to see the truth behind it. Yeah. Uh, we were able to, one of the first guys we contacted for this film was a local historian. His name is Gary Pinkerton. And we contacted him because he had written some you know, educational articles on the lake, I think almost a decade ago. And we were contacting him hoping that he remembered some of the research he did. We wanted to bring him on as you know, a consultant just to make sure we didn't get any of these facts wrong about the lake. And he said, this is really weird. I'm actually writing my own book about the lake right now. And so he was kind of telling a lot of these smaller short stories about the lake, not necessarily the big picture, but he was sharing a lot of the cool untold stories of these researchers tracking down you know, the families of researchers tracking down the daughter of one of the searchers who pressed the uh, the button to dynamite the lake, watched all the snakes and fish fly out of the lake. <laughs> there are so many cool stories to be told about this lake that, that no one's ever heard of. And so we said, let's let's give this film a shot and let's put something together that's really cool that anyone with an interest in the paranormal or treasure hunting you know i don't think you have to be from this area to have an interest in this film when you've got a town that i'm sure a lot of people can relate to their own personal treasure legends we talked earlier about all these local legends being attached to to all these places i think a lot of people can relate their own legends to this and this film will kind of be a wake-up call saying hey there <laughs> you might want to look into it because there could be some truth behind it there is so much value, I find, in exploring these things. So my, my first book was basically debunking a certain local urban legend, but then finding so much other cooler stuff that's tied to it. Uh, you know, historical stuff, paranormal stuff, you name it. Just all kinds of really, really neat stuff. And that continued in my latest book as well. Just more of the same regarding that, that same legend. So... I don't know what your final answer is. I don't know if you debunk it or if you prove it. But either case, I mean, I, I think even in if you end up debunking things and finding the real story, sometimes the real story can be so much more interesting than these kind of side stories that have built up around it. Yeah. Some of it, you know, I think a lot of these stories are the same way. It's a good mix of real truth, hoax, and then kind of additions that have added later, you know, it's, as, it's as a, stories it, are told. It's a it, big game of whispering down the lane is what it is. Yeah. 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 I kind of look at it as my job to like, okay, let me get as close to the original whisper as I can, because there's a lot of junk that's been added over time. Yeah. And, and yeah. so with this film, you'll be able to see, you know, why has this been attributed to pirates? You know, is that true? You know, why are these people thrown into into the story? Why was Hendrix Lake chosen? Is there any truth behind that? You know, we think that it is based on a, a sliver of truth. And, you know, the sliver of truth could be a much cooler story than than what 
form the legend takes today. Oh, sounds amazing. Do you have an ETA on this? We are currently in the second stage of fundraising. Uh, We've been going around the last month or so to all these historical societies in Texas, kind of pitching the concept of the film, raising interest. We recently had a few articles written about us, but basically we've had eight months of research. I've spent my whole life around this legend. My father was uh, a scuba diver. Both my parents were formerly, uh, I guess, Caribbean dive guides. He had some treasure hunting experience. And I remember being told by one of his friends, there's pirate treasure in East Texas. So, of course, when I get older, you know, when I study filmmaking, after I come back from college, I want to, you know, give it a shot. So we finished that. It's already been screenwritten. Uh, We're conducting interviews right now. We are still fundraising for uh, a lot of the post-production stuff. If you'd like to look at some content that we've put out already, we've got an announcement video that I think gave a good taste of what the film will be like. All of that stuff can be found at sunkensilver.com or you can go to gofundme.com slash sunkensilver. That's a good place to to find information. I'll put those links in the show notes too. Cool. Yeah. Um, Also, if... You know, the historian we contacted, we are giving two different ways of, or we have two different ways of kind of telling the same stories. And his book is coming out later this month. And from what I've read so far, it's really cool. So if you have an interest in, in treasure hunting or if you're from the area, and, and a lot of people that we found out, uh, or that we found so far, had no clue that this was even real. A lot of the the memories surrounding this are, are dying out, you know. You mean it even was local the people? 70s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of hit or miss. Either someone knows so much about it or they've never heard of it. And you know, that's that's kind of the, the fun part is that some people are right there with us and some people we've got to, you know, catch up to speed. But we faced a good bit of criticism and you know belief in this and i think that's important for for a legend i think the perfect breeding ground for a legend involves both you know optimism and pessimism surrounding whatever it is without the pessimism there's no fun in believing it there's no you know stress to find out more but without the you know pessimism there's no there's nothing keeping you grounded uh, That's an excellent so, way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a way that these these types of films are done that are misleading and kind of leading off in all these directions. But with Sunken Silver, basically you'll see a transformation of folklore across 150 years in a very small town in East Texas. I, I can't give away too much, but... Uh, we do have some dives planned for for some artifacts, which will be pretty cool for the film because it might be somewhat historically significant to the area. Um, but we think our film and Gary's book are, are some of the coolest resources that will be available very soon. And I don't know if I ever answered your question about when we want to finish, but we are aiming for you know July somewhere in there. To get it done, but if yeah, if, if you'd like to see more about it, visit the website. We've also 
We've got links on the website to Gary's book if, if you're interested in, in having a book uh, with some really cool personal stories. Give the websites one more time. Yeah. So our film website is sunkensilver.com. You can find us on uh, Facebook as well at Sunken Silver. You can find Gary's book through hendrixlake.com. I believe it is called True Believers. And he actually named it True Believers for a pretty good reason. And he says, no matter what you tell them, no matter what explanations you come up with for things, no matter if you say there's nothing been found here, you can completely drain the lake, show that there's nothing there. There are still people out there that will be true believers. No, no matter what you come up with, there are still people out there that will hold on to that belief. And so his book is about the people who believed. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to the film. And uh, whenever you get a release date, let me know. And, and I'll let everybody know on the show again, too. Yeah, our goal is to... to um, we're aiming for Amazon. We want it to, to be as accessible as possible to people who are interested and you know if we're able to to raise the funds that we want to raise i think it will be a very good film and will uh, be pretty entertaining that's awesome i'm excited for it so we have one more thing you you dug up uh is, is this story shareable this local sasquatch story you dug yeah up? all right i'm yeah i'm excited about this I, I don't know exactly what it is but you said you you did dig up a uh, now this is a sort of a historical story right yeah. So I, I told you, I, I kind of had some experience with, with some Sasquatch or had some Sasquatch experiences when I was younger, uh, specifically in, in 2008 in East Texas. And it, I had an interest in it, but, you know, I didn't know these podcasts existed. I didn't know other people had sightings as well. I found out other people had ex, had experiences as well and, and found all these podcasts and then I was like, okay, I need to devote my time to collecting these reports because there are so many people out there that don't know there are mediums out there. They don't know about podcasts. They don't know about the BFRO. So it's kind of like that iceberg, the picture of the iceberg where there's only you know a portion of it exposed. That's kind of what we, we know about Sasquatch sightings so far. There are only a few people that come forward with what they see. And I was like you know, what could be out there in my own town, in my own area that, that people start coming forward with. And I, I think one big reason, uh, East Texas is a huge hotspot for Sasquatch sightings. And a lot of people just talk about it like it's another, you know, animal. They talk about it like a nuisance. But I think religion has a, has a big part of it. And then kind of denial that it could fit into their their religious beliefs and I, I know that's that might be difficult to understand but I, I remember talking to a man from northeast texas I, he was from the Caddo lake area and basically at the end of his encounter he said you know i'm a religious man but i don't believe god made that and i think that's one thing a lot of people struggle with they they don't know how to fit it into their own worldview um and i think that's one reason a lot of people don't come forward with reports so I started kind of asking my parents, you know, how many family friends do you have? Or have you ever had a family friend mention this? Anything like that? Well, my mother recently reunited with one of her classmates. And this guy, he's a fairly credible person. You know, I can't give his name, but he did some 
contract work in the Middle East with with um, some pretty big oil and gas companies. You know, he's pretty big professionally. And my mother was talking about me one night and said that I had been collecting Sasquatch reports in East Texas. That was one thing. That was one of my hobbies. And he said, well, my grandfather always shared this story almost every time I saw him. And my mom was like, okay, tell me more. And he ends up telling her the story. And she said, hey, here's my son's number. You need to give him a call and tell him about what your grandfather described. He ends up calling me that night. We talk about it. He doesn't know much, but you know what he kind of said really got under my skin in a way. And something kind of clicked for me. But he said, he told me that his grandfather swore until the day he died that one morning he was out coon hunting in East Texas. This would have been in the late 1930s, you know, three decades before the Bigfoot craze took right. off yeah, right. after the Patterson-Gimlin film and everything. So so there's not a lot of, not much to go off of when describing everything. It's not many people know what you would be talking about if you said Sasquatch or Bigfoot or anything like that. He said, my grandfather swore until the day he died that he found two dead baby monkeys laying on the ground in the middle of the woods on this coon hunting property in Recklaw, Texas, uh, another very small town in the area. And I said, that's incredibly interesting. You know, you never hear about young ones. And I asked him, did you ever say anything about the size? Did you ever say anything about how they looked? And he said, he'd never stressed too much about the size. He'd estimate, you know, the size of very young kids, but they were just laying there. And he said, but something was off. One of them, the, and this is, this is what got to me. One of, one of the heads on one was completely missing and it was missing uh, a portion of the spine. None of the other body parts had been touched. It was not like it had been scavenged. None of the body had been touched. He said it was like the head had been twisted and pulled right off, and the other one was dead, and they, they couldn't see any physical reason for it to be dead. There was no blood or anything like that. He didn't mess with it. I'm sure in the late 1930s in a very poor rural area of the country, I mean, no one's going to know to report that or ask for money for finding it or anything. But right, right, yeah. I heard the head, and I've heard so many reports involving prey with the heads being either completely torn off or the you know the necks being fully broken so it, it kind of clicked to me i was like has anyone ever theorized that these things could be territorial in some way you know like male lions going after cubs that are not its own um, or animals that attack other groups young mm-hmm. i mean that made sense to me i I don't know what he saw. I fully believe his story with it being from a family friend. He was so adamant about what he saw to the point where it it almost drove him crazy. For about three decades, he 
he said his, his grandfather, you know, didn't really think much of it. It was strange, and it wasn't until the, the Bigfoot stuff really caught up that I'm sure he said, I should have taken advantage of finding those whatever they were right, right. there. You know, we could have had this mystery solved. Um, and I'm, I'm sure other people have, have come across things, but yeah, that was one report that really bothered me with how the the young one that he described had been killed. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very disturbing. And what a strange detail! Like, if you're making up a story, mm-hmm. what a strange it, detail to make up. You know, what it I mean? was just one. One of the bodies was completely untouched. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the it, other one. The head and part of the spine had been pulled out. They couldn't find it. Yeah. But he said his grandfather shared that story until the day he died. Wow. Yeah. I just I just don't see how you know someone just comes up with it. if you just want to tell a story, you know, of I I found a monkey in the woods. First of all, two. Okay, that's strange. They're twins. Uh, you know, presumably. And then, mm-hmm. then to come up with the, the detail about the head being torn off, which you're right, is very disturbing. And that's right where my mind went. I'm cautious about talking about Bigfoot as if it's a natural animal. And some people have it all figured out. Uh, yeah, I put that in quotes. You know, they, they know how the clans are organized. They know for a fact they use infrasound. None of this has been proven. But uh, to some people, it's, it's gospel truth. They know it as a fact. How, I don't know. But in any case, if we're talking about something that organizes itself like other primates, uh, it could have been merely that it was a male. Uh, sometimes that's enough to get you killed by the head male. And then the other thing I was thinking is maybe there was some sort of birth defect with it. And it was, you know, that was, that's not uncommon in the animal world or in the primitive human world when something has a birth defect just to end it you know rather than try, yeah. try to help it through life and that's one thing that i think adds to to the credibility of whatever species it is, whatever it is a lot of people talk about defects in the species a lot of the reports they say uh, you know when it was around my house it ended up tripping on something or mm-hmm. you know ends up bumping into this uh i believe it was a professor at washington state uh who was an anthropology or primatology primatology professor, um, but he said he ended up believing because he found a footprint of a defective foot, which right. would have been indicative of, I believe it was something like a spinal lesion. It was a very specific foot defect, and whatever it was, you you pretty much had to be an expert, you know, to yeah. know to know what like just somebody who's going to make a goofy cast for whatever reason, and like I'm going to make the foot look messed up. They would have had to know how to make this specific defect in order to, you know, pull off this cast. I, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I believe it's the yeah. cripple foot tracks they call them. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What was the, the moment? Speaking of Sasquatch, for you, where you you kind of had that realization that it exists. What was that point where you said, okay? this thing is real. Did you always believe in it or was there some specific instance? I went back and forth and I still allow myself to go back and forth as to whether it's a natural animal. And by natural animal, I mean an animal like, like any other one on earth that, that we know about. Yeah. It could in fact be 
a completely natural animal, but if so, I think it's it's just unlike anything else. It has so many evolutionary advantages as to make it the most special, uh, highly evolved thing that ever existed on the planet. Uh, it, it's got very very unique traits. But in any case, I'm I'm not saying that it's it's necessarily unnatural or paranormal. Although you know, I could go there too, depending on the day. But I I do believe people are actually seeing these things, and I do believe when they see them. They're as, as real as any other thing. When they're seeing them, they're right there. They're in front of them. And uh, honestly, it was a... When I was young, it was probably just like, I wanted to believe. And then I would go through stages of going, eh, it's, it's, I don't think so. And then back and forth and back and forth. But as an adult, when I started writing books and listening to witnesses and interviewing witnesses myself and staring into people's faces when they're telling me these stories... So it was not anything specific that happened to me, although I've had some weird stuff happen in the woods, but it was absolutely witness testimony for me and, and just looking into people's faces. And, and I mean, even my wife is highly skeptical, highly, highly skeptical. She has come away from some of these witness interviews, either just over Skype or, uh, you know, for the podcast or in person, both, you know, both cases where she has kind of come away shaken in her you know her skepticism shaken where she says I don't know I don't know what's out there I don't know what he saw but he saw something and uh, th- and that's really what did it for me I just I've met so many people that are so earnest and forthright and th- th- believable uh in in their testimony that I just they just absolutely convinced me that you know they're seeing something yeah it, I think if there's something about whether it's behavior, behavior or appearance, if there's something that doesn't bother you, then I don't think you're looking enough into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something there that's that's very very odd, very odd. Christian, thanks so much for sharing your stories. Absolutely, I'm, I, the, I'm super excited. Plaid story was great. It's an awesome addition to the Lionel Man canon. I'm excited for your movie. And the Sasquatch story was was awesome, too. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your stories. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Before we go, I'd like to thank Eric C., who has given another PayPal donation to help us continue making Strange Familiars. He's given in the past, so he's a, a repeat donator. So thank you so much, Eric. And I'd also like to thank Doug. You might remember Doug from episode 68, A Creature Called Brownie. Doug was very kind and gave a very generous donation towards repairing my banjo, which he saw the ripped head on my poor banjo in the video that Soraya put up of my recording studio. So thank you so much, Doug. And you'll be hearing from Doug again in another Flannel Man show we have coming up pretty soon. Soraya also took some 360 video of he, Josh, and I playing my Bigfoot game and having a discussion about all things strange, and he will be sharing that with his patrons. I think that'll be a dual patron segment. We will be sharing it with both the Where Did the Rogo patrons and the Strange Familiars patrons as soon as Soraya has that ready. The Bigfoot game is actually a lot more fun than you think it might be. It's a good game. And it was definitely fun to play it with Josh and Soraya. 
And my daughter Ursula played the game with us as well, so that was uh, definitely a fun time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Strange Familiars will be back next week. Again, if you want to contact us, email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, and you can also join the Strange Familiars Gathering group on Facebook to interact with us and other Strange Familiars listeners.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.